It's kind of a milestone day. Today is Sermon 100 in the Gospel of Matthew. If you're, if you're interested in such things, that means that there's 50 plus hours of teaching in the Gospel of Matthew that you can link over to on our website or Sermon Audio, our site there. Father, I thank you for your word and, and ask that you would bless it this morning as we contemplate it and meditate on it and seek to understand this simple, profound statement that the Lord Jesus made. And we thank you for this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, Jesus had gone to Caesarea Philippi in the north. He had taken his disciples with him. After they arrived there, uh, this being about six months before his crucifixion, most of his ministry is now behind him. He asks his disciples uh, kind of a public opinion poll. What do, who do people say that I am? And they give him a, a variety of answers, all of which were wrong. And then he asks them, who do you say that I am? Peter answers for the rest, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus immediately gives a, a spiritual significance to that answer. He says, you didn't figure this out on your own. Nobody taught you this. You didn't get this from flesh and blood. My Father in heaven has revealed this to you. Uh, it's not that the disciples or anybody else were deaf to what Jesus taught or blind to what he did, but human beings in our sinful state, in our state of rebellion, simply can't take all of that information put it together and come up with the right answer. God, the Father, must reveal to us who Jesus is. So just as we get going, this is free. As you share Christ with people, you cannot make them understand who he is. You can tell them, but you can't make them understand it. That's a work of God. Well, the disciples' belief system was, was that of first century Israel. The belief was that the Messiah was going to bring a spiritual, moral, political revival. There was going to be confession and repentance of sin. There would be a spiritual awakening among the people. The kingdom of God would be established, and from Israel, the glory of God would fill the earth. This was the moment that they had all been waiting for. And yet, as Jesus taught, as he served, he faced rejection and abuse and mockery. Tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, heard him and saw him, and yet just a tiny, tiny number, comparatively speaking, believe in him. And so the statement that Jesus makes in Matthew 16, 18 is really key. It's not just important from a biblical point of view and from a doctrinal point of view, from a, an end times point of view and from the, the, the point of view of the purposes and work of God on earth, it's important for them at this time to understand this. He says to them in verse 18, in response to Peter, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. And We've been working through fairly large sections. Today, we're just going to focus on one verse. So to begin with, we have Peter and the rock. There's a, a lot of uh, 
a lot of misunderstandings about that, certainly within Roman Catholicism. They take it to mean that Peter is the rock, you are Peter, and upon you I will build my church. And then they would say that Peter becomes the first pope, that there has then been a succession of popes ever since leading down to Pope Francis today. That's not what Jesus says. Grammatically, it's certainly not what he says. He distinguishes between Peter and the rock. You are Peter, and upon this rock, he separates them. There's also a a difference in the language that is used. The word translated Peter means a stone, a, a piece of rock. It could be the stone that you shake out of your shoe. It could be the the big boulder sitting in somebody's yard, but it's a chunk off of a rock. The word for rock is Petra, and it means solid rock, bedrock, rock itself as a a substance. So the two aren't related, or the, the two are related, but they're not the same. The Jesus is not going to build his church on Peter, but on this rock. What is the rock? I believe that it's Peter's confession. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. That is going to become the foundation for the church. Not that phrase, but the substance behind it, which is Christ himself. Jesus himself is the rock. Now, rock in scripture is a picture of stability, safety, and security. Moses says to God in the book of Exodus, show me your glory. And God says, no, you can't see my glory. Nobody can see my glory and live. But I'll tell you what, you'll, what I'll do. I will pass by and I will take you and I will put you in the cleft of the rock. And there you'll be safe in your sinfulness from the judgment of my glory. And he did. David writes in Psalm 27.5 that uh, safety and security in God are like being lifted up and placed on rock, on a solid foundation. Jesus himself compares his word to solid rock in Matthew 7. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them, that's the key, may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rock is the words of Christ. Doing the the words of Christ, living in faith and obedience, is equivalent to building our house on a solid foundation. So rock is a picture of safety and security. On this rock is not a reference to Peter, But Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus is the cleft of the rock that protects us from the judgment of the glory of God. Jesus is the solid rock who is our shelter and protection. He is the the solid foundation for a life that will not be destroyed in the judgment to come. We are hidden in Christ, in God. Peter definitely had a role Uh, He would be part of the foundation that the Lord would build. Ephesians 2.20 says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone, the, the chief cornerstone, the most important part. They didn't pour concrete foundations in, in that time. They built, con- they built foundations for buildings out of rock. The cornerstone was a bigger, broader piece that was very, very carefully cut to 90-degree angles. And everything was assembled according to that cornerstone. It held everything together and it set the direction and the pattern for the rest of the building. A good cornerstone gave you a good building. A bad cornerstone would give you a bad building. 
Peter goes on to say about all Christians coming to Jesus as to a living stone. He is the living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. So you also, not just the apostles and the prophets, not just Peter, but you also, all of those who believe in Christ, are being built up into a spiritual house as living stones. And that, by the way, is why the word of God has such an exalted place in our lives and our worship. It's why scripture is the constant on Sunday morning. We begin with reading scripture. We read a portion of the London Baptist Confession, which is a summary of scripture and doctrine. Uh, We sing songs that are rooted in the word of God and sometimes quote it directly. We should be praying saturated with the truths of Scripture, and as I listen to you pray, I hear that. And every bit of our teaching is based on the Word of God. It's teaching the Bible. It's not teaching about the Bible. I enjoy teaching about the Bible. We could do a series on manuscript evidence or uh, contextual evidence for the truth of Scripture. But what I do, as you know, is I teach you what the Bible says. With that, then, Jesus is the builder. I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Jesus is the builder. He's the foundation. He's the builder on that foundation. Uh, The work of building the church was never delegated. It wasn't delegated to Peter. It wasn't delegated to the apostles. It wasn't delegated to pastors and teachers. It's not delegated to the church as a whole. Jesus reserves that for himself. And I see two things here for us. I I see I will build my church is a promise. It's a promise that Jesus has kept for the past 2,000 years. Whenever a sinner is converted, Jesus is building his church. Now, let me say that the church does not mean churches. Churches can be established on good grounds or bad grounds. There are false churches out there. There are churches that decline into apostasy. Churches can grow or decline. Uh, Churches can have influence in the the world or lose influence in the world. Jesus is building his church, his body uh, on earth and in heaven. And it's always built by him. And because of that, it will not fail. That's his promise. And because he's building it and he will not fail, I will build my church as also a comfort. There's sometimes a temptation to things that think that things are going badly for us. I'm I'm just old enough to remember when the moral majority exploded in the 1970s as a political movement. People were very excited at the time. Personally, I believe it was a failure. I believe that they were trying to legislate a spiritual change, and that's just not possible. I am all for voting biblically. I am all for electing Christian godly candidates who will lead according to Christian principles. I am all for that. I just don't believe that we can change our world through a legislature or through the judiciary or through the White House. We've had some pretty good presidents over the last 50 years. We've not been able to change the tide of our country's decline. That's because we can't legislate such things. 
We think of missionaries, Hudson Taylor and, and uh, William Carey, those who've gone into foreign lands to share the gospel and who died without seeing much fruit at all. Their work, their, their blood poured into those cultures and those people and that, that soil eventually produced revival, but many of them saw nothing, very little compared to what they felt that they were investing. I remember reading that when, when uh, uh, pioneers first came to the Midwest, they were just absolutely thrilled. There's not a lot of rocks here. There's not a lot of trees here. They just walked out, and it seems they crossed the Missouri River, and they took a deep breath and, and said, this place is made for crops. Well, missionaries go to places that are not ready for crops. Sometimes they go to places that are solid bedrock and it has to be broken up bit by bit. And it's easy in those kinds of circumstances to start thinking there's something wrong, things are going badly. But in every time and place, Jesus has reserved a people for his own possession. And he is building his church. And he will not fail. We see, too, that the church belongs to him. I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Jesus doesn't say, I will build a church. He says, I will build my church. He has the right to it. He, it belongs to him. He has the possession of it. Now, he's given us his words so that we know what the church is, what it's for, uh, what comprises it, how it's structured, how it is to be led, how it's to function, everything else that we need to know. Jesus has given us all that information in his word, and he has spoken with absolute authority so that we can follow his instructions. No one has the right to ignore his wishes when it comes to the church. It's not about having a church that suits us, but a church that glorifies him in faith and obedience. And all of that because it belongs to him. All of that because he delights in it. He rejoices over it. He sings over it. That picture in the Song of Solomon of the bridegroom singing over his bride and rejoicing over his bride is a picture of Jesus and the church. And I suppose I should say, just in case you're, you're not thinking this or you're not really aware of it, by the church, it's not a reference to an organization. It's not a reference to a, a 501c3 nonprofit religious organization registered in the United States for tax purposes. It's not a building. It's the people of God that he is saved by his grace, by his mercy, joined to himself and joined to one another. We will even say to people, will I see you in church this weekend? My brother in Creighton this morning greeted everybody and said, I'm glad to see everybody in church. But this is just a, an empty space we lease. You are the church. When you gather here, the church is assembled. That's why that Greek word that we translate church means assembly. You are the assembled ones. When Jesus builds the church, he's not building an organization or a structure he is building a people. He's building a community. And you're part of that building. Our part within that is to be living stones. Christians are living stones. 
as I thought about living stones this week, thinking about what Peter wrote, looking back at chapter 2, but a little bit bigger and highlighting certain phrases, you also are living stones. And you are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. You are a chosen family. You, by the way, are that royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a people for a God's own possession. You once were not a people. But now you are the people of God. At one time you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is talking about you. This is not talking about the people who received Peter's letter 2,000 years ago only. This is talking about each and every person who has trusted in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And that's why church membership is only for those who are actually born again. We're not a club. We don't, we don't take dues. We, we don't have growth numbers and quotas. The church are people who have been chosen and anointed and sanctified and constructed, put together in order to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. So Jesus is building his church. It belongs to him. We are the living stones that he is putting together, and he gives this promise, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. The gates of Hades is simply a reference to the grave. It's uh, the the Greek version of the, the Hebrew word sheol, and it simply means the grave, and the powers behind the grave, the power of Satan, the power of darkness that's behind the grave. The power of death, the power of Satan will not overpower the church. And that leads me to an extraordinary statement, but the church is invincible. We don't think of the church as being invincible. We think of the church as being vulnerable. There are actually people who kind of uh, make their, they they create a ministry based on uh, on the, the communication of fear. Churches are dying. Churches are failing. The church is declining. The body of Christ is not declining. Churches, congregations, can grow and can shrink. I had the, the, the privilege years ago, years ago of preaching at a church that was averaging 400. And another church started doing a different program and then that drew people away because there are people who who move within the the christian community to what's the cool thing what's the new thing what's the exciting thing down on norfolk avenue within about a 300 yard span is a wash tech car wash and Tommy's Car Wash. Tommy's just opened up. Wash Tech opened up a couple months ago, and I joined their little club thing, and you pay for two washes a month, and you can go as many times as you want, and they do a good job. Tommy's opened up, and we went through just to see what's it like. They're giving away free car washes through today, by the way. If your car's dirty, go through. And, oh, by the way, they've got four levels of car wash, and they're giving away the good one. They're not just spraying you with a little water. They're, I mean, it's the good one. I've switched over to Tommy's. Why? Two reasons. It's $2 cheaper. Two bucks is two bucks. And I can take 
our van through as well as my car. And at Wash Tech, it's just the one vehicle. People are fickle. Wash Tech was great. Now Wash Tech's awesome or awful. Tommy's is great. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a little town. It really is. I know for some people, Norfolk's not a little town, but coming from Southern California, Norfolk's a little place. And it could be in a year they'll both be closed. We see that happen with restaurants. It should never happen within a congregation. People should never treat the congregation, a, a church of, a, of Christ, a, a community of believers as a, as a retailer providing a product. But people often do. The, the church that Jesus is building is invincible. The building materials for that church are the church, the living stones. So I want you to imagine yourself as a living stone placed by the Lord Jesus on the walls of the spiritual house of God. And you look above you and there's nothing above you. There's just empty space. And you look around you on the walls and you can see gaps. And you, you might think like I think. You might think of those pictures of bombed out places during World War II where the roof is gone and the walls are crumbling. And you look around and say, but look at all the gaps. Look at all the holes. This is an ancient structure. It's archaic. It's falling down. No, there's holes and, there's holes and gaps because Jesus is still building. He's made that promise. The world sees us as obsolete and out of date. The world says we've got nothing to say. The world has been predicting the, the death of the church since the day of Pentecost. It can't last. It's just a fluke. If we arrest those people and punish them, they'll scatter. Oh, surprise. Along with the gifts of the Holy Spirit and Regeneration comes a courage that nobody ever could have expected. Jesus mines living stones from the quarry of death. He comes into the world that is filled with death. And he removes us. He rescues us from Hades. He rescues us from the grave. He rescues us from the power of the devil and builds us into his church. And that makes us invincible. There are people saying that the church in America is declining. Churches certainly are declining in America. The majority of them are those that have already been overcome by the world. They've become so worldly that the world sees no difference. And they simply cease to matter. Come and look at my garage someday. We've had enough trees fall on it and enough age that there's big holes in it. Dakota's seen it. If there's a rainstorm, standing in my garage is no big advantage. Well, if that's the case, why bother going in the garage? If the garage is, same, is the same as the open sky, it provides nothing. If a church is the same as the world, then there's no point in going. So I think some denominations simply will cease to exist within the next 50 or 100 years or less, perhaps. But Jesus is building his church. I found a list of the most restrictive Nations and dangerous places for Christians in the world as of this year, 2022. The first three are Afghanistan, North Korea, and Somalia. In each of those places, there are believers. There are Christians. They can't meet publicly. They can't meet openly. 
North Korea in particular has been just closed off and shut down for uh, 70 years. Whenever the truce for the Korean War happened, I think it was 52 or 53. How could they, there be Christians then? Or how big could, could there be Christians today in North Korea? Because there were Christians then in North Korea. The takeover of communism didn't cause them to walk away from the Lord. They raised their children. And they taught them the gospel. And some of those children believed and perhaps neighbors believed. Christians are treated abysmally in North Korea. They're put in concentration death camps. You're simply literally worked to death. And yet that Christian who's put in that death camp, what do they do? They keep sharing Christ. They do so quietly. If they did so openly like we can in the United States, they would probably be taken out behind the building and killed. But see, the church is invincible. Jesus is building his church even in the worst places on earth. The gates of Hades will never overpower the church, never overcome the church. That means death will never overpower us. We have been mined out of the quarry of death and made living stones. Death it holds no fear for us. Physical death is just the, the twinkling of an eye. And then we awake in the presence of Christ. Jesus has rescued us from the power of, of Satan. And Satan will never get us back. Satan is destined for eternal judgment. Death itself will be thrown into the lake of fire. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Now the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. How did he give us the victory? Well, Jesus lived according to the law, lived a sinless life. He died on the cross. When he died, he died to the law. The law no longer has any judgment authority over him. When we are regenerated and put our faith in Christ, we are joined with Jesus in his death, and the law ceases to have any judgment authority over us. It's still a moral authority. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. Those are true. But the judgment authority is gone. That means the church is invincible. That means in no sense by the accounting of God can the church fail. By the accounting of God. By people's measurements, the church can fail. There are certainly churches in our world that say that our aim is to, is to be a megachurch. Our aim is to have 3,000 people by the end of the year and to double in size in two years. And they can look at themselves and say, we succeeded or we failed. There are other churches that say our goal is to have 100 baptisms every year. And they can, they can measure that and they can say, oh, we succeeded or we failed. But those aren't the measurements Christ uses when he looks at his church. That's not the, the, the matrix he uses. So we sin and we stumble as Christians. We do that. We fail to live in perfect holiness and love. We do that. And the world, by the way, uses that against us. But Jesus has already factored our failure into his success. Why do I say that? Because before we knew him, we were locked in the quarry of death. 
We were immersed in sin. We were dead and we were raging rebels. And by his mercy and by his grace, we have been born again. And now in spite of all of our weakness, in spite of our immaturity, in spite of our struggles, in spite of our sin, there burns within every Christian a spark of life of Christ. And so you sin and you fail. But Satan doesn't pump his fist in victory because when you've done that and then you turn back to the Lord in confession and repentance, there's victory. Sin is never victory. I don't mean to say that. Please don't think I'm saying that. But the confession of sin is, and repentance is. See, there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God. Not even your own sin, because Jesus has broken those chains. If you're like me, you focus most of your attention on your failures. We shouldn't do that. Now, we need to confess sin. We need to repent of sin. But where you and I used to be totally depraved and completely dominated by death, there is now within us a spark of life that leads us forward. And there's hope. And every day that grows, every day that produces more Christ-likeness. Now, I confess to you I am not yet conformed to the image of Christ. And I confess to you that I am not yet holy and blameless before him. But I confess to you my strong conviction that when the end comes and the Father has brought all things to a close, you, brothers and sisters, and I will be made perfectly conformed to the image of Christ, and we will be holy and blameless before him in love because of his work in building his church. Jesus can't fail. As we bring this home, I also say to you, Jesus says that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. The disciples believed that the Messiah would change everything. They hoped for that. They thought that there would be spiritual awakening and revival and that the kingdom would be established and the enemies of righteousness be destroyed and the glory of God would fill the earth, and that's what we want. We want to go back to the early 1700s to the Great Awakening and say that, do that, Lord, do that again. Let the preaching of the gospel bring hundreds at a time. But the Messiah came and was rejected. Many tens of thousands heard and saw him, only a tiny fraction believed. We long to see a a great awakening, and instead we see a deeper anesthetizing. Dullness and apathy grows. It's all part of his purpose. Jesus promised that he is building his church. He cannot be stopped. He cannot be hindered. He will not fail. That's our hope. That's our hope. I'd said earlier that there is a comfort there to us and there's a promise to us. There's also a warning here, especially to the world. Right now it seems that the world has gained ground, wickedness is flourishing, and the ungodly seem to be winning. They're claiming victory left and right. But see, we as Christians, we look back 2,000 years at what Jesus did on the cross in faith, and we say, I believe he did that for me. And we look forward to whatever time the Lord has designated in faith and say there is a day of judgment coming. I can't prove it. I've only been told it. 
I have a book that tells me. And the world says, I want proof. And we say, I don't have proof. But if you delay, if you act like those in Noah's day, eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage, if you ignore what God has promised to do and warn that he's going to do, if you just ignore that and you just get on with it day by day like nothing is going to happen, one day the door will be shut and the rains will fall and the flood will come. There will be a day when the Father says, time And it all happens at one time. But you know what happens before then, if the Lord tarries another hundred years, is is probably every one of us will have that, that personal moment where we stand before him. And so if you don't know Christ, if you don't have the confidence that you do, today is the day of salvation. Don't let what seems to be victory for the world convince you that Jesus has failed. He has not failed. The kindness of God leaves room for repentance. For those of us who know him, I'll just close with this. Jesus can't fail. His church cannot fail. One day his kingdom will be established. One day we will see him as he is and be like him. Father, I thank you for your word. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you are building your church. I thank you that you dug me out of the pit and that you lifted me up and you placed me as a living stone in your spiritual house. And I thank you for the men and women that you have done that for here. I lift up anyone who doesn't know you and ask that you would have mercy on them. There was a time for every person in here when we were not a people and we had not received mercy. No one was born knowing you. Every living stone within your church has to be converted, has to be regenerated, has to be born again and and remade. And so I ask for those who don't know you that you would do that for them. And for those of us who do know you, Lord, we freely acknowledge that it's a dark time. That if we didn't have hope of eternity, the best thing to do would be to just escape. But we do have hope for eternity. We look at those who are so opposed to you, so angry and so embittered. And if we really stop to think about it, we're terrified for them. Because they face your sure and certain judgment. Would you give us the avenue and the openings to share the gospel and then through your word and by the power of your spirit have mercy on those who don't know you as you have had mercy on us? We thank you for this day and ask for your continued blessings upon it, that we would glorify you, trust you more, and serve you better this week. And we thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.